Well, good morning, church, and thanks to Grace and Eric for starting our worship today. It's good to be together as a family of God, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. Today's a great day as we start a new series on Jonah. I'm looking forward to it for many reasons, but one of the reasons is that it helps us to remember that God's heart is for all the nations and cultures and peoples of the world, not just us here in this room or here even in this country, that he loves the whole world. And right here at Wheaton Bible Church, hopefully that you know that we have people here that worship in five different languages right here in this building. And so today we have Papicho Adia uh, from our French African community, and he is going to share his, a little bit of his story of how he came to know the Lord and read scripture for us in his heart language. After our dad passed in September 26, 2006, we did not have anybody or anyone else to provide for food, medical, or our education. Everything became extremely hard financially. I remember every night, my mom, my siblings, and I used to get together crying and praying. We all fear what the future was going to be. But it was that moment. It was that moment of fear that God brought me to know him. God brought me to know him as my father. God brought me to know him as my provider and he has been ever since. Je lis le livre des psaumes, chapitre 67, verset 1 à 5. Au chef des chantres, avec instrument à cordes, psaume, cantique. Que Dieu ait pitié de nous, et qu'il nous bénisse, qu'il fasse luire sur, luire sur nous sa face, enfin que l'on connaisse sur la terre ta voix, et parmi toutes les nations ton salut. Le peuple te loue, ô oh Dieu, tout le peuple te loue. Les nations se réjouissent et sont dans l'allégresse. Car tu juges le peuple avec droiture et tu conduis les nations sur la terre. Parole du Seigneur. Thanks, Papicho. Let's stand and worship God for his heart for all nations. to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His praise. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. 
please be seated. Isaiah 6, 1 through 3 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So today we've already worshiped God for his holiness. What are some other characteristics of God that we can worship him for this morning? Lift up your voice and let's celebrate those things together. He's faithful, sovereign, merciful. He's truthful, full of truth, full of grace. Almighty, provider, compassionate, long-suffering. All these things we worship God for this morning. God, thank you that you are all these things and so many more. We could have a whole service just celebrating who you are today. And we want to pray the Lord's Prayer thinking about these things. So let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, the next song we're going to sing is a fun new song by our organist, Tony Payne. We often think of asking God for forgiveness as a solemn, serious thing, which it is. But we also want to remember the other side is that God is overflowing for, in grace and mercy for us. And so we can rejoice greatly in that. And this song helps us to do that today. So we're going to teach it to you and then ask you to join us in a minute. So let me teach it to you. We throw ourselves at your mercy. We throw ourselves at your mercy. We throw ourselves at your mercy. And our heads are bended low. Heads are bended low. Heads are bended low. Okay, so if you know Tony, he's kind of a fun guy. I don't know if you can tell when he's playing. He happens to be gone today. But anyway, he's a fun guy, and I think you'll like his song as we continue. Can we try it together? Okay, let's try it. We throw ourselves at your mercy. We throw ourselves at your mercy. We throw ourselves at your mercy. And our heads are bended low. Heads are bended low. Heads are bended low. Nice job. It took us a lot longer than that when we tried <laughs> to learn it. All right. Let's try it again. New words. All right. Here we go. Lord, we come at your invitation. Lord, we come at your invitation. Lord, we come at your invitation. And we come in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. I think we're ready. Why don't you stand and we'll do the whole thing together. 
Excellent. We'll do that again. We'll get really good at it. Let's keep going with our choir. Oh, there we go. I told them, go right when I'm done, and then they did it. They did it again. Jesus. 
Hi, my name's Dan. And I'm Kathy. And uh, we're both leaders at Regeneration here at Wheaton Bible. We've been married now 26 years. And we just celebrated our 26th wedding anniversary this past Sunday. Mm -hmm. And um, we started to come to the Regeneration program because, um, you know, we were struggling with a lot of the um, challenges of, you know, being married, raising four kids. One of the things that I struggled with is I went from becoming a casual drinker to really seeking um, and using alcohol every night as just a way of escaping all of the pressures that I was feeling. Yeah, that's what brought us to regeneration. Once we started to go, um, we just found this band of other people who are were struggling with life's issues. What it really does is it lets you know that all that you're struggling with, Christ died for. So you've already been forgiven for all your sins past, current, and in the future. So it starts to have you rely on God rather than yourself. Rely on His strength because I'm weak. So it's, it's really not about me at all. It's about um, me giving in to loving Him like He loves me. Yes, it's a, it, it's a Bible study, but it also helped you to be intimate with God. I had done Bible studies and, you know, I would answer my questions in my workbook, but it, it taught me how to be quiet and to listen and spend time with Christ where I had never done that before. As a result, all of the relationships that I had damaged, I have since restored. And I, I didn't want to go back to any form of isolation. So for me, staying involved with the men's group um, keeps me focused on God every day, and it's right the place where I need to be right now. And it's not only brought us husband and wife closer, it's brought us closer with our family and our children. And we've been able to share this experience with them, and it's just been healing. The people with regeneration, there's no judgment. We're there to lift each other up in prayer and to love one another and encourage one another. They really helped us significantly in our marriage um, and, uh, and have made a big impact. Uh, in particular, it changed our lives. I have no words for it. Thank you, thank mm -hmm. you. Yes. Praise God for the way he works in his mercy in changing people's lives. Amen? Yesterday, uh, I was underneath our porch as I was working on my sermon. Uh, yesterday... Okay. You think that's funny. So as I was saying, um, yesterday as I was working on my sermon, it just started to pour uh, in the morning. You guys experienced that, right? 
And so I went outside, I stood under my porch, and um, the words, as I'm watching this downpour, the words of Isaiah 45 came to me. You've heard me utter this before. It's been sort of part of my spiritual formation. And um, it goes like this, rain down righteousness. Let the cloud shower it down. So I picture the prophet watching rain. And he uses rain and turns it into a metaphor. Rain down righteousness, let the cloud shower it down. Let the earth open wide. And let salvation spring up and righteousness grow with that. Let's pray that together now. Would you bow with me? Father, we've uh, seen so much rain over the last uh, couple of days. And really, that rain is a picture of the very mercy that we're going to talk about today, the mercy we've been singing about, the mercy we just saw in this story of healing in a marriage, and a family. And we want to ask today in our own lives, in our families, in our struggles, in our uh, communities here in the United States and around the world, that you would rain down righteousness, that you would let the clouds shower it down, that the earth would open wide, that our hearts would open wide, that people and families and uh, communities would open wide to you. And righteousness would spring up. And salvation with it. And we pray, Father, that we would never look at the rain in the same way. That we'd see that your prophet has taken it, the very uh, word of God has taken it, and told us it's a picture of the mercy that you want to offer us, especially in and through the work of your son, Jesus, who willingly spent his life that we might find life in his death. So, Father, with this morning, we don't pray for ourselves. We pray for the people of, around us, rain down that righteousness. Let their hearts open. Let salvation spring up for people we think of that are needy. God, would you rain down that righteousness? People that are sick. People that are going through a variety of different difficulties, rain down righteousness. Let the clouds shower down on their lives. And we pray with Paul that out of the uh, glory of your riches, that in your mercy you would strengthen us with power in our inner being so that Jesus would dwell in our hearts by faith that we would have the ongoing experience of the wonder of the mercy and the grace and the compassion, the surrender, the sacrifice, the submission, the humility, the gentleness, the tenderness of Jesus. God, we ask, I ask for my brothers and sisters today that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith. And we know on the one hand, as believers, that's already true. We're talking about the experience of the wonder of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the tenderness of Jesus. 
and that together with all God's holy people, we might have the power uh, to know the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of this love of Jesus that surpasses all knowledge, that we might be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. Father, I pray that for Wheaton Bible Church. I pray that for our sister churches. I pray that for the communities around us. Oh, give us more of Jesus. And we pray in his great name. And we thank you, Father, that we can give to you because you have so generously given to us. And we give to you as an act of worship. We give our lives. We give our talents. We give our time. We give our finances. That you might be exalted and that people lives might be changed as we just saw in this video. And all God's people said, amen. Let's watch this bumper. God sent Jonah on a mission to go to Nineveh. But Jonah didn't want to go and decided to sail far away. When the boat was at sea, a dangerous storm threatened to destroy the ship. The mariners were afraid and tried to save the ship. The captain urged everyone, including Jonah, to cry out to their God for help, that they might be saved from the storm. So today we begin a series on this fascinating, well-known Old Testament story, this Old Testament book of Jonah, 2,800 years ago. The living God spoke to this Jewish prophet and said, Jonah, go. And Jonah said, no. Marking him, making Jonah an illustration of our ongoing battle as believers with God's designs and God's directives for our lives. Jonah comes alive when I recognize I am Jonah, you are Jonah. We all have pockets of resistance to God. We all, all have areas in our lives where periodically, if not regularly, we say no. And this morning, I want to talk about that. But there's more to the book of Jonah, and we're just merely getting started in this series today. Because like every other book in the Old Testament. The, the book of Jonah is ultimately not about Jonah, it's about God, just as your life is not ultimately about you and your agenda, but God and his agenda, amen? And so as great as Jonah's disobedience was, is, what the book of Jonah will tell us is it pales in comparison to the infinitely greater mercy of God that it will be showered down on the Ninevites. But here in our text this morning, we'll see is actually being showered down on Jonah. And I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this in a couple different ways this morning, but this is probably the most important thing I'm going to say, and I, and I want you to hear me in this. 
your experience as a follower of Christ of the felt mercy of God is what makes you great spiritually. Your ongoing experience of the felt mercy of God, I, I feel it. Uh, it's something that's inside me. It's something God continues to flood uh, me with. That is what will make you great spiritually. I'm a child of mercy. My father is a father of mercy. As Paul tells us in Ephesians, God is rich in mercy. I want to talk about this mercy this morning. So would you stand with me as we read the first six verses? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Jaffa, modern Haifa, near Tel Aviv, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish, and God wants us to understand Jonah's motives to flee from the Lord. Psalm 139 tells us it's impossible. Jonah's trying. And Jonah ran away, and we read in verse 4, then the Lord set a great wind. Notice it's a great city and now a great wind. A great wind on the sea. And so we're talking the Mediterranean and such a violent storm rose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid. Seasoned sailors are panicking. And each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. That's God's word and you may be seated. Now, what I want to do is, is, is simple this morning. I want to spend some time talking about Jonah's uh, disobedience, and we're going to look at God's mercy. Jonah's disobedience is discussed in the first three verses, God's mercy. Just in this section, uh, we will see in verse 4. I'm not going to get to verses 5 and, and 6 uh, this morning. So let's begin with Jonah's resistance, his resistance to God. And we see this, First of all, in the first two verses where uh, God says, uh, go, and, and uh, Jonah says, no. Let me back up. And what I want you to understand is when God is commanding Jonah to go to Nineveh, he's commanding him to go to the royal city, what would become the capital of the Assyrian Empire, this massive empire that ruled much of the world in Jonah's day. Uh, some uh, were, were talking the 700s BC. Now this command of God to Jonah is actually shocking. It's shocking because God isn't commanding Jonah to merely utter some oracles against a distant superpower but to go. Nowhere, nowhere has God in the Old Testament, whether it's with the bold and courageous prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos commanded them to go. They utter their oracles against these Gentile nations and their idolatry from the safety of Israel. God says to Jonah, uh-uh, 
You're going to go to the capital, and in the capital of the Assyrian Empire, what would become the capital, you're going to preach against the wickedness of Assyria. This, what God is asking Jonah to do, is unprecedented. But it's worse because what God is commanding Jonah to do defies all the sensibilities of all of Judaism. Jonah, but not just Jonah, all of Israel knew that the mighty city of Nineveh was not only the essence of evil, but it was the essence of anti-God power. Uh, parts of Nineveh were Sodom on steroids. Uh, the city was a cauldron of corruption. History tells us it was barbaric and cruel, especially towards its enemies, like Israel. Nineveh was an affront to the holiness of God. All Nineveh deserved was the judgment and destruction of God, so thought Jonah. And so declared other Jewish prophets. For example, we read this about Nineveh uh, from the book of Nahum, king of Assyria. Nothing can heal your wound. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands at your fall. He's prophesying the fall of Assyria, which takes place in 722 B.C., <clears throat> some years uh, in the future from the time of Jonah. But look at this. And who has not felt your endless, your endless cruelty? That was Assyria. So Jonah is not just bewildered, go. Jonah is furious. What God asked him to do goes against everything he understood about the character of God. It was not, it's not unlike what Abram, Abraham went through when God was asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac. But for Jonah, the problem was compounded because this was a death sentence. Uh, like asking a Jew in the 1940s to go to Berlin and, and to preach against Nazi Germany's reign of terror at the height of the reign of terror. And all this is going on inside Jonah. Self-righteousness is when you assign a righteousness to yourself that you don't possess. And you judge others because you don't believe they live up to the righteousness that you possess. And I mention self-righteousness because I want you to be careful in how you view Jonah. What God is asking Jonah to do is unprecedented. It's unique. And now that brings us to verse 3 in Jonah's response. And he ran away. We're told later he flees. 
Nineveh was about 400 miles to the north and east. Tarshish, and we don't know exactly where Tarshish was, but if Tarshish was in Spain, it was about 1,800 miles straight west. And what um, God's word is telling us when he mentions uh, these two different cities is that um, what God is telling us here is that Jonah went in exactly the opposite direction that God commanded him to go. Now think about that with your life. God invites us, God calls us, God commands us to regularly search the scriptures that we might learn more and more about the life-giving reality of Jesus because God knows that's what's best for us. But what do we do? We spend our lives watching TV or on Facebook or filling our lives with amusement. It's like giving up on attending church regularly or meeting with other believers or serving or giving or sharing the gospel because it's just not convenient. And it's awkward. It's like a, a, a friend of mine once said to me, uh, Rob, I don't care what God's word says, I've had it. It's what pain and strain, stress and confusion uh, do to us. You and I are Jonah. And occasionally, in big ways, but more often in middle size and in small ways. But before I leave this, I want to ask the question, why? Why was Jonah like this? Uh, ultimately, why are we like this? And, and what I want you to see is the answer is because underneath Jonah's nationalism, his politics, his disgust, with what God was asking him to do, the insanity of it from Jonah's perspective was with Jonah at the core of his being a fundamental mistrust of the living God. As Tim Keller says, because Jonah couldn't see any good reason for what God was doing, he assumed there weren't any. Think about that. Jonah here is doubting the wisdom and the goodness of God in the moment. So you don't make the team. Your job dries up. You're in a relationship that is struggling. Someone you care about gets cancer and on and on. And since you can't see any good reason for what God is doing, you are in danger of assuming there isn't any. And then you distance yourself and you begin a slow walk towards Tarshish. You see, instead of trusting God in moments like that, we trust ourselves. Uh, disbelieving God knows what's best, we assume we know uh, what's best. And it becomes, now hear me in this, it becomes a matter of what we feel. It becomes a matter of our preferences. It becomes a matter of our fears. And this is as old as the Garden of Eden. This is as old as Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve trusted in their desires, their intuition, their preferences, instead of God's word, look what happened. 
In Eden, God said, no, not this one tree, every other tree. No, not this one tree. God said, no, Adam and Eve said, yes. In Jonah, God said, yes, go to this one city. And Jonah said, no. Unbelief. It was ancient Israel when Israel, all the entirety of Israel came to the edge of the promised land. They were just on the other side of the highway. They were looking and the spies come back and they tell them, hey, we can't take the land because there's giants in the land. There's a couple other things going on like fortified cities and Israel as a nation refuses and flees from God's promise. Just like Adam and Eve, just like Jonah. When God said, go to Jonah, Jonah was at the greatest moment of grace in his entire ministry. Think about that. The opportunity before him, unbelievable. God had appointed him, appointed him to be the human agent by the, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit to lead what will become the largest localized revival in human history. As Nineveh will see over the next couple weeks, repents and turns to the living God. But Jonah refuses. What he saw as contrary to God's plan, because he couldn't understand God's plan, what he saw as contrary to God's plan was actually at the center of God's plan. Now be sobered by that. Uh, God, I don't want this. God, what in the world are you doing? God knows what you're facing. God knows the brokenness around you. God knows your tendency to disappointment, to cynicism, uh, to frustration, to resistance, uh, to unbelief. But God has you right where he wants you to be. And he knows just how he will use the very thing that you hate to make you great. Jonah standing at the greatest moment of grace, the greatest moment of opportunity in his life. And when you're in a bind and when you're facing difficulty, God not only uses that thing that you hate to make you great, but he uses the thing that you fear to build your faith. Man, I want this for you. I want you to learn from Jonah. But we cannot stop there. We must go on and look at the uh, first iteration of the mercy of God in these delightful four uh, chapters. So I want to take you to verse 4. Then the Lord sent it, and here we have a great wind. It was a great city and now a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm that the ship threatened to break up. Now, do you see the mercy there? And you're thinking, Rob, it's a storm. It's not mercy. And maybe it is time that you retire. <laughs> you're, you're, you're losing it, Rob. Well, that may be true. It certainly is true. But what I want you to see here 
is that God responds to Jonah not with condemnation but with compassion because the mercy is the storm. God's mercy here, the first instance of the mercy of God we see is a storm. God doesn't cut down Jonah. He sends the storm to recalibrate Jonah. This will be the greatest moment of realignment, the greatest realignment in Jonah's entire life, his entire uh, ministry. And the way God does this is by bringing a horrendous tropical storm. Can you imagine the weather channel would have been going crazy? We got an eye in the sky over here. We got this helicopter. What, what do you see up there? Well, what I see is this horrible storm, and I, I see this ship. Now, wait. They just threw somebody overboard. No, whoa. The storm's completely gone. That's the beginning of the book of Jonah. And the mercy is the storm. Because what God is calmly doing is playing out his discipleship plan for his prophet just as he plays out his discipleship plan with you and with me. But do not misunderstand. The Bible does not teach that every storm you experience, I am not suggesting that every storm you experience in life is because of your sin. But I will say that the Bible clearly teaches over and over that sin does bring trouble. Sin does bring difficulty. As a professor of mine uh, used to say, we don't merely break God's commandments, we break ourselves against God's commandments. Uh, I've probably forgotten about 90% of what he said, but I'll never forget that. Uh, Rob, you don't just break God's commandments, you break yourself against uh, God's uh, commandments. So, for example, you know, you ignore what the Bible says about being gentle and patient and faithful as a husband or a wife, and your marriage will suffer. Uh, you ignore what the Bible has to say about loving other people, and you decide you're going to spend your life treating people with indifference. And you'll be a person who will find it very hard to maintain relationships. God sends the storm, and the storm is the mercy of God specifically form-fitted for Jonah because Lamentations tells us God's mercies are new every morning. And they're form-fitted for you. But what I want to do now is I want to go below the surface and notice I want, I want to talk about something else that's here that I think we sometimes get theoretically, but I'm not sure we understand existentially, I mean experientially. So let me state it this way. We all know that God is loving, kind, merciful, compassionate, and forgiving. 
We all know that God doesn't condone sin. God is holy. Uh, we all know, as Hebrews 12 tells us, uh, that God disciplines his children when we, we do sin. But what we may not know, and here I mean experientially, is that our sin as believers actually intensifies God's love toward us. Now, did you hear me? Our sin as believers actually intensifies God's love toward us. Toward us. Uh, isn't this true? Um, for those of us that are parents, our, our, our child does something wrong or, or something really wrong, something that's, uh, that's really big, and while it pains us deeply, we don't give them up for adoption. Rather, it intensifies our, our commitment to pray for them. We, we think about them. How can I help? What can I do? What can I say? Um, and all of a sudden, our, life, our love, rather, is intensified. It, 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 their sin activates an intensification of our love. The same is true when a child of yours gets sick. And what is sin if it's not the uh, greatest disease among humans. And just as a parent's love is intensified uh, when he or she is sitting by a hospital bed where their child is, so God's love is intensified by your sin. Now, now some of you are going are gonna to struggle with that. But what I want you to see here is that God violently, the word is used in our text, steps into Jonah's life with this storm. And the violence is pure, holy mercy. And God's mercies are new every morning for you. Now let me demonstrate this. There's other passages I could go to. Uh, Katie referred to Isaiah 6. It's interesting because we have this strong picture of the holiness in uh, Isaiah chapter 6. And then there's this right in the context of holiness and we find that the prophet is forgiven by the coal that touches his lips. So we've got God's holiness that spills out in mercy and, and forgiveness in Isaiah 6. But I want you to see what Hosea says. Now, this is God speaking. God is talking about the sin of Israel. And notice these words. We're going to look at a couple verses. My people, that is Israel. God is speaking and determined to turn from me. Uh, but how can I give you up, Ephraim? Uh, that's a synonym for Israel. How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart, now here it is. My heart has changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. Now mark that, and now we shift to God's holiness. 
I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and I am not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. The cities of Israel, another way to translate that is I will not come in wrath. So we have in Hosea the sin of Israel. Look at how bad the sin is. My people are determined, they're determined, they're intentional. At every juncture, at every opportunity, they turn away from me. But then in verse 8, God's response. Now, sin has consequences. Israel will fall as a nation. Israel falls in 722. My heart has changed within me. All my compassion, all my uh, compassion is aroused. I don't know about you, but my small, small brain can hardly take this in. Great sin, great compassion, a, a great holiness. My compassion is aroused because of your sin. So we all know that God is merciful, but experientially, do you really understand that your sin intensifies God's love for you just as a a parent's love is intensified by the disease of a, a, a child? Do you see what this means? I mean, this is, verse 8 is shocking because it tells us that when we sin, what goes on inside our God is a heightened mercy without compromising his holiness. Whoa. Now that's so counter to us because we tend to think, okay, um, I've done this and this is really bad or I can't shake this. And so we begin to feel distance from God because we don't repent and because we just assume that God uh, is distancing himself from us because I do this or I don't do that. I want to say to you, God sides with you against your sin. He does not side against you because of your sin. He is rich in mercy. Okay, Rob, but I'm not sure I get it. Well, think about the father, the father of the prodigal son. The prodigal son uh, uh, in part destroys the reputation of the father, takes off, lives in in sin, and how, how does the father respond? Well, he waits. And he watches. And then one day in the distance, he sees the son returning. And he begins to run to his son, and when he gets him, he hugs him, almost crushing him to death. And all of that is right on the heels of the son's sin. And so on the heels of Jonah's sin, what does God do? He sends mercy in the form of a storm because it recalibrates everything in Jonah's life. Now, yes, the father of the prodigal hated his son's sin, but his fundamental disposition, God's fundamental disposition toward you is one of mercy. It's the point of the cross. As Dane Ortland says in his wonderful book, I highly recommend this book, Gentle and Lowly, 
According to Hosea 11, the sins of those who belong to God open the floodgate of his heart of compassion for us. Now, no, it's not our loveliness that wins his love. It's our unloveliness. And what I'm trying to say, friends, and what I want you to understand as believers in Christ is God does not retreat from you because of your sin. You retreat from God because of your sin. God is not tight-fisted with his, uh, tight-fisted with his mercy. He's open-handed. God is not stingy. He, he's lavish. And I want to show you what this means. What this means for you and me as we live our lives. Why seeing this mercy, believing this mercy, pulling this down into our hearts. And I see the unbelievable mercy of God in creation and most vividly in the wonder of Jesus Christ. Now why does this matter so much? Let me give you a couple reasons as I conclude. Divine mercy, first of all, reveals <laughs> that as a believer, you are wonderfully and eternally imprisoned in the love of God. The grace, the mercy, the compassion, the forgiveness of God. Now, you and I will not sin in heaven, but we are no less secure here on earth in God's love. So you tell Satan, get behind me, when he says, you know, God is disgusted with you. And when you sin, you run to God, not away from God. So Hebrews tells us that we can draw near with confidence. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? That we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So I approach God's throne, which happens to be a throne of grace for me as a believer, for you as a believer, not a throne of judgment. I approach it with confidence. Why? Because God is endless in his mercy. The Assyrians were endless in their cruelty. God is endless in his mercy. Do you know that? Has divine mercy captured your imagination like that? Divine mercy second matters because the very things that make you cringe about you are the very things that make God hug you the hardest. He's your loving parent. He doesn't side against you. Uh, he sides against your sin. Just as a parent sides against uh, the disease that is ravaging a loved one. And here's what this means. This means you are free to admit how messed up you are. You do not need to pretend, and there is way too much uh, pretending in the church. Friends, your identity is not in what you do. It's in what Jesus has done. It's not in your record. It's in Jesus' record. It's not in your performance. Uh, it's in Jesus' performance. The very things you do that make you cringe the most are, are the things that makes God hug you the hardest. It's okay to be you. You don't need to pretend. Mercy matters. 
Third, because it outstrips, it infinitely outstrips your guilt and your shame. And I want to say to you, if what we see here in the book of Jonah and this horrendous evil he commits and the, uh, the uh, uh, incredible uh, mercy that follows right on the heels, if all this is true, then would you please stop beating yourself up? Get back in the game. Throw yourself on the throne of grace. Uh, Mercy matters fourth. Because, and here I go again, the felt mercy of God is what brings you rest and peace. Oh my, I'm so stressed, oh my. I, I, I just blew it. And you take your eyes off yourself and you see and you believe and you feel the mercy of God and you find rest and peace. The experience of the divine, abundant, uh, non-stoppable, uh, bottomless mercy of God is what calms you, in, calms you into joy, into generosity, into sacrifice. It's what keeps you from complaining. The ongoing experience of the tenderness and the forgiveness Uh, 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 of Jesus and all that he has done for you. That's what makes you great spiritually. Uh, Fifth, mercy matters because uh, this consumption and this understanding and this belief in God's mercy, this experience of God's mercy is what makes you merciful towards others. (laughs) And then finally, divine mercy matters so much Because on that day when we stand before Jesus, we will weep with relief and we will be stunned for just a moment at how feeble, how thin our view of our Father's merciful heart really was let's change that mercy was there before the foundation of the world mercy is what has brought you to the savior Uh, mercy is what will bring you home mercy is what will make heaven endless joy And if you are here today and you have never tasted this mercy, you have never tasted the mercy of the forgiveness and the love and the adoption into God's family that comes to us through the life and death of Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to trust Jesus right now. Say yes to Jesus. Trust him as your Lord and your Savior and let his mercy wash you from the inside out. And if you have trusted in God's mercy and you've been trusting in God's mercy for years, for decades, I want to invite you today to hold your head high.
and let God's mercy melt you, continually melt you into joyful and humble obedience. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Now take a moment and let God speak to you in this moment and in light of this story. Are there some areas, pockets of resistance you need to confess? Some conversation you need to have, do that right now. But don't stop there. Go on and praise God for the mercy of forgiveness. And so, Father, we praise you for this mercy, this mercy of forgiveness, of renewal. Fill us with the wonder of our bleeding and dying, merciful and mighty Savior. Amen. Let's stand and sing of the blessedness of trusting Jesus.
And that really is our benediction. And may God give you the grace to trust him more and more, to lean into him more, to more to prove his faithfulness in your experience. And all God's people said, Wheaton Bible Church, you are sent. You guys have a great day.